The Bible is explicitly clear that both the believer and for that matter the unbeliever one second after you die are conscious. You're either conscious in the presence of the Lord in heaven in the new Jerusalem or you are conscious in a place the scripture calls Hades that someday will become a part of the lake of fire. So knowing the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself, what I want you to see from our passage is that to be asleep is never described of the person inside the body, but of the body itself. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are currently in our study on Israel's rebirth and the rapture. And today, Pastor Carl highlights selected scriptures that point to the promise of Jesus' return. We must never forget that God grounds our hope on the completed work and word of Jesus Christ. Please join us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 as we continue. The Bible teaches at the moment of physical death, the person inside goes home to be with the Lord. They are present with Christ. The true believer does not sleep in a grave, but clearly as chapter four will reveal, they are awaiting the resurrection of their body while they are in heaven. And so your loved one in heaven this morning is not in his resurrection body. And I hear people say it all the time, you know, and you, you, time to correct it is not at a funeral or they're grieving. Oh, he's there in his glorified body just dancing in heaven. No, he's not. He's waiting for his glorified body. He doesn't have it yet. Now, it appears from Scripture that the believer in heaven is given some kind of temporal body, but it's not the resurrection body. The saint leaves his physical body, the body sleeps, but not the person inside. You say, well, if the body is in the grave, the person in heaven, are they in some kind of a conscious state? Absolutely. Again, here's a chart that might help you a little bit. In Matthew 17, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, and behold, Moses and Elijah appear to them, talking with them. I'd say that's pretty conscious. And by the way, they were recognizable. People say, well, I recognize my loved one in heaven. Absolutely. Just like Moses and Elijah were recognizable. Or think about the thief on the cross. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Or think about Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, he refers to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Or again, Stephen, when he is being stoned to death, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Furthermore, in the Revelation, you read of tribulation saints. People have said, oh, we must be raptured after the, at the end of the tribulation because the scripture speaks of saints. Of course it does. It speaks of Old Testament saints, it speaks of church saints, and it speaks of future tribulation saints. In Revelation 6, 9, and 10, we learn of the souls of those who've been slain because of the word of God. These are believers who are converted during the tribulation who pay the ultimate price with their heads because they refuse to follow Antichrist. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They are conscious, they are praying, they are crying out. 
Even so, in 2 Corinthians 5, most of you know that verse. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Or Paul, when he writes the church in Philippi, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Listen, to die would be a great loss for the believer if body, soul, and spirit sleeps in a tomb somewhere. But no, absent from the body, present with the Lord, to die is actually a gain because you have more of Christ in the fullest sense. So that's why he goes on to say, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and listen, and to be with Christ. To depart from this body and to be with Christ For that is very much better. But then he brought it back to earth in verse 24 of Philippians 1. Yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. He longed to go and to be with the Lord in heaven. But he knew there was more people who needed to be won through his preaching of the gospel and more saints who needed to grow and mature in their faith. So the Bible is explicitly clear that both the believer and, for that matter, the unbeliever, one second after you die, are conscious. You're either conscious in the presence of the Lord in heaven, in the New Jerusalem, or you are conscious in a place the Scripture calls Hades that someday will become a part of the lake of fire. So knowing the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself, what I want you to see from our passage is that to be asleep is never described of the person inside the body, but of the body itself. And it's a very fitting figure that God would use, that just as our sleep is followed by an awakening, our burial someday will be followed by a resurrection. And so for the Christian, our body is laid down like you might lay down for a nap. Some of you go home for the classic Sunday nap. I long for that. I usually am up at 5 here by this morning. I was here a little late at 6.20, and, and I'll be here and probably go home tonight at 9 o'clock. But some of you will go home this afternoon, and you will have your classic Sunday afternoon nap, only to get up. A magnificent picture of what will happen when you die. Again, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. A born-again president, his name was John Quincy Adams. On his 80th birthday, he was asked this question, how is John Quincy Adams today? To which he responded, well, John Quincy Adams is quite well, but the house he is living in has become quite dilapidated. Before long, it will be unlivable, and I must move out, but John Quincy Adams is doing quite well. You see, he realized that his earthly physical body was just a house that he lived in, but someday he would have a real home in heaven. There was a famous Christian. He's buried outside of the city of London. His name is Solomon Pease. He spelled it P-E-A-S. I've told you of him before. And he had inscribed on his tombstone before he died, beneath these clouds and under these trees lies the body of Solomon Pease. Peas ain't here, it's just the pod. Peas shelled out and went to God. <laughs> that's true. All that's laid in the grave is the pod, but the person inside, the immaterial person, 
are soul and spirit. Man is described as three parts, body, soul, and spirit. Sometimes in Scripture, soul is used to describe both soul and spirit, like what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? But when it's dissected specifically, it's described as body, soul, and spirit. The unbeliever has his soul. That is, the personality, his mind, his will, his emotions, the immaterial you. But his spirit is dead. He's dead in trespasses and sins. That's why Jesus said, your spirit needs to be made alive, as Paul will say to the Colossians. You must be born a second time to know the Lord and to have a promised place in heaven. But God gives as much hope for the body as he does for the soul. Someday, he will raise that body up as well. And so God promises a raising. You know, it's interesting, the word cemetery is from the Greek word koimeterion, that comes into Latin, you can almost hear it even in Greek, and then it comes directly into English as cemetery. That's what they called the places of burial in the first century. There were sleeping places, there were dormitories, there were sleeping chambers. And they're describing the places where the bodies are laid. And so God describes the believer's body as being asleep. By the way, he never describes the unbeliever's body in that fashion. It's not that he couldn't because their body indeed is waiting a resurrection because just as your body that you're in today is not suited for heaven, this mortality must put on immortality, this perishable must put on the imperishable. Even so, their body is not suited for hell. Otherwise, in a flash of time, they would be annihilated. And the Bible teaches the eternal retribution of God Almighty on the lost, the place designed for the devil and his angels. And if you go there, you'll have no one to blame but yourself because you rejected God's way of escape. But God never describes the unbeliever's body in peace. We may rest, right, rest in peace, but there's no peace for a lost man after he dies. So again here in verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brethren, meaning brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep or dead, so that you not grieve as the rest who have no hope. We don't want you to grieve like the lost people of this world. Now please note, he does not say we are not to grieve. Jesus wept at the death of his dear friend Lazarus. Don't let anyone tell you that strong Christians don't weep at the death of a loved one, because they do. The Apostle Paul could say of his dear friend Epaphroditus, for indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him also, but on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Had the Apostle Paul had to deal with Epaphroditus' death. He said, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. I would have grieved deeply. Grieving is natural. That's why God gave you tear ducts. Yesterday, I was in a house of death. A dear family lost their son. Heartbroken tears, crying, grief. But if you know the Lord, you don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. Jesus wept, the scripture says. Short verse, if you're starting your Bible memory program, that might be a good place to start. Grieving is necessary. And it's unnatural not to grieve. 
And so some of these saints were gone already. They were dead. They were in the grave. But God wanted them to have perspective. Look, if you lose your wife or your husband, child, a grandchild, you will grieve deeply. The more passionately you love them, typically, the greater will be your grief. But our sorrow is not like the sorrow an unbeliever has. It's more like the sadness when you have to say goodbye to someone and and you know you won't see them for a real long time. That's the kind of grief that we have because we know that they are with the Lord. So we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And let me just say parenthetically, I suppose nothing is harder for me as a believing pastor to preach the funeral of an unbeliever, someone who is Christ-rejecting and a God-hater. Now, I think it would be very insensitive to say, well, your father, your mother, your brother, your son, he is burning in hell. That doesn't offer any comfort. But I can say, based on Luke 16, 8, what Jesus said, basically, if your brother were here today and were to preach your own funeral, let me tell you what he would want me to say. And I say that on the basis of what Jesus described of the unbeliever who died and went to Hades. I hope you know there are no unbelievers in hell. Everyone in hell believes. But of the rich man who was in hell, the rich man said, then I beg you, Father, speaking of Abraham who's in heaven, I beg you that you send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. By the way, here is a lost person asking for evangelism. What a rebuke to a lackadaisical church that today very few Christians share their faith. He would never, ever, ever want any of his loved ones to come to that place of torment where he is. So the Lord continues in this account. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament, we'd say. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Jesus is teaching that all one really needs is the Scripture. Why? Because the Scripture is alive. You know, a man may say he doesn't believe in God, but he does. Because God has revealed himself to every man through creation and conscience. And a man may say, well, I don't believe the Bible. But he does. When he hears it, unlike the Quran or the Book of Mormon or the Vedas or any other religious book, some encyclical letter, some papal bull, only the Bible is alive. Only the Bible pricks the heart. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And of course, that truth is hammered home. Because a short time later, there was a man by the name of Lazarus who literally died, and Jesus raised him back to life. And from that day forward, the scripture says the religious leaders sought to murder Lazarus, get rid of the evidence, to take out Christ. One of the truths we learn from Luke 16, among other things, is that at the moment of physical death, the unbeliever is conscious as well. 
And so when a lost sinner dies, we may mourn for them. But when a believer dies, we only mourn for ourselves because that believer is more alive than they've ever been. They're with the Lord. Clearly, our saved ones, loved ones, we don't have to grieve like the rest who have no hope because, again, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, look at that word hope. You might want to circle it. It's an important Greek word, elpidus. It is a word that is much stronger than our English word hope. It speaks of something that is sure and certain. Thayer's Greek lexicon defines it as a joyful and confident expectation. And hope biblically has both desire and expectancy. And if you admit either desire or expectancy, you do not have biblical hope. For instance, I may desire to win a million dollars, but I don't expect to. And I may expect to pay my taxes, but I don't desire to. So when we speak of hope, we're speaking of both expectancy and desire. It is something sure and certain that God has guaranteed. And so he wants to underwrite in your thinking this sure and certain hope. And to do it, he begins with the grounds of our hope is the work of Christ. He grounds our hope on the work of Christ. Now, each of these two reasons that he's going to give, first the work of Christ and then the word of Christ, they're both introduced with the little three-letter word for. You might want to circle it first in verse 14 and then again in the beginning of verse 15. And there are different Greek words that are translated for in the New Testament. This one means because. And so he's giving us two reasons. For or if because... Here's one reason you don't have to grieve like the rest of the lost world. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Now, there are different kinds of conditional statements in the Greek New Testament. This is what linguists call a first-class conditional statement. You use a first-class conditional statement when you want to write something that you assume to be true. And so you find this structure in the temptation of Christ. Satan says, if you are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Satan is not questioning the deity of Christ. Actually, he's affirming it, and he's challenging Jesus to prove it through some miracle. When Jesus said in John 15, same kind of structure, first-class conditional statement, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. He's not implying that the world might not hate you. He is guaranteed that if you live and speak for Christ, the world will hate you. And so here he says, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. He's not questioning their belief. He's assuming it to be true. Now, some newer translations don't put the word if in there, but they put the word sense in there. And they do that for clarity, but I think it actually distracts from the argument that God is actually making. Although it is certainly true that Paul obviously recognized that these people embraced the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you had just put the word sense, then this verse would become more of a lecture rather than a dialogue. And he wants to draw them into a, a thought process here. If we believe Jesus died and rose again, they'd say, well, wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, and they're reading the letter. Yeah, we believe that. So if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we believe that. 
then he is going to bring these loved ones who have already died, as he will argue, out of the grave at the rapture. And so he's emphasizing, he's trying to grab their attention. If we believe this one thing is true, then this other thing is true. For if we, and by the way, Paul includes himself, Paul believed that the rapture could happen in his life. You say, well, it didn't. Was Paul wrong for writing that? No, he was, wrong. He was right for writing it. Because it could have happened in his life. He lived with this sense of expectancy. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Again, sleep being a euphemism for death. But in his description of Jesus' death, interestingly, he never uses the word sleep, none of the gospels or the epistles. Why is that? Because if you were here last week, his death was horrible. You cannot soften it. But because there was such horror in his death and the physical and spiritual payment, there needs to be no horror in your death. For if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's the gospel, that's what someone baptized this morning confessed symbolically. When you go down under the water, the word baptizo means to submerge, to immerse. When you go down and you come up, you're saying my faith is in the gospel and Jesus who died, who was buried, and was raised from the dead. That's our confession of faith. Paul defined the gospel in 1 Corinthians that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. And he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for everyone who believes. So since we do believe Jesus died and rose again, even so, circle those words, even so, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So our hope, part of the guarantee that God has given us as Christians is more than the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return as king and judge, but also that he is going to bring with him. That word with is so important. You might want to circle it, underline it, do something with it. He'll bring with him. With him who? With him your loved ones who have already died. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. He's going to bring their spirits back from heaven. He will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so Jesus came into this world to take the sting out of death. You know, I've lived in the same home for over 30 years. And for 30 years, I drove up and down this street. And there used to be a big trailer park. And a lady died, one of our former church members. And it was just obliterated and... My wife said, what's that back there? She said, it's a graveyard. We'd been driving up and down the road for 30 years and never seen this graveyard. So we drove off the road and back into the woods and there on one of the graves, a man born, a dead in 1923, had written on his tombstone, oh death, where is your sting? Jesus took the sting out of death We don't have to grieve like those who have no hope. Now watch this. The Christians here in Thessalonica could have their minds set at ease because the fact is is that Jesus will bring with him from heaven those who have fallen asleep. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And by the way, unless you are in Jesus, you will not be going to heaven. The simplest definition of a Christian in the New Testament is someone who is in Jesus, someone who is in Christ. For if any man is in Christ, 
He is a new creation. He, the Father, made him the Son who knew no sin, who is sinless, to be sin on our behalf there on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. And so if you are in Christ, identified and covered in his righteousness, then these truths are indeed true of you. Listen, in the most complete and lengthy dialogue in all the New Testament on the resurrection, it's 1 Corinthians 15. The chapter opens, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Not gospel, but it's articular, the gospel, which I preach to you, which also you received, and which you stand, by which you are saved. Wonderful. What is the gospel by which we are saved? He defines it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. How? According to the Tanakh. According to the scriptures. We'd say today, according to the Old Testament, that he was buried and he was raised. How? According to the Old Testament scriptures. And so the death, the burial, the burial's part of the gospel. You don't bury people who are alive. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ are all prophesied in Holy Scripture. God gives pictures of Messiah right from the start. Adam and Eve rebel against God, and they try to basically adapt fig leaf religion by the works of their hands. They try to cover their own shame with fig leaves. And the first death in all the universe takes place where God kills multiple animals because he clothes them with skins, plural. And he's underscoring the truth. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Abel, he comes with a blood sacrifice. Cain comes by his hard work. All oh, these liberal scholars and some evangelicals have foolishly adopted it, said, oh, Cain brought his... Second best, Abel brought his very best. No, the difference was on the nature of the sacrifice. One came on the basis of blood. By faith, the scripture says he offered a better sacrifice. Where does faith come from? Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. And God had revealed through Adam and Eve, even on the day when they fell, into his sons, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Again, in the scriptures, the death, burial, and resurrection are found, the Passover lamb. Our Jewish friends just celebrated Passover, as we did as well. They a little differently than us, but the blood was placed on the doorpost and the lintel. And when the judgment came through the land, God saw the blood, he passed over. In the sacrificial system, there are rivers of blood. On the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, the high priest would put blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And when God looked down at the items in the box, the Ten Commandments, which they rejected, the leadership of God is seen in the budded rod, the provision of God is seen in the jar of manna. All he saw was the blood that covered over their sin. In Psalm 22 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 2, God prophesies the death and resurrection of Christ. Isaiah 53, a passage Jewish people don't read. You know, they have a reading program where they read through the whole Torah, the first five books, and then selected passages. Isaiah 53 has never been in their reading program. Why not? Because Jesus is all over it. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program GPS 
1-800-273-0001. Remember, tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to Search the Scriptures.